welcome to this episode of the Imperial Healthcare Business Podcast. My name is Ivy Adedugwe and I'm your host for today. Today we'll be discussing the COVID strategy in London with Dr. Oge Lozwe, who is a GP partner and trainer based in Barnet in North London. She's currently working with the NHS England as a clinical advisor on the COVID vaccination program for the London region. We hope you enjoy this conversation and you enjoy listening. So very well and welcome, um, Dr. Lozoe. Thank you for joining us. Um, we'll start off by asking you to kindly tell us about your career journey so far and how you came to work with the London COVID vaccine. Thank you for having me. Glad to be here. So career journey-wise, became a GP nine years ago now in London, trained in London, kind of did my GP training in London, stayed in London. So a bit of a Londoner through and through, a bit boring, some would say, but I love the city. And um, chose general practice because I like the idea of following people's stories through and building a team in a local area and really following that through. I was very much on the path to do acute medicine and literally switched um, in my foundation years. So have a look back. I think we need our brightest and our best in primary care. We see most of the population. It is the only way to deliver global health care to the whole population. Um, so we really need our best dealing with most of the population in our communities. And so why I got involved in the vaccine program. Um, the job came up for clinical advisor for the London Region Vaccination Program. They talked about wanting diversity of thoughts in the program. And we all heard, I'm sure everyone heard about the data before the vaccine came, when the vaccine was first um, released in December 2020, about how those of us in the Black community are less, much less likely to take up the offer of the vaccine than other racial groups. And I just felt a bit of a call to action with everything that happened in 2020 with the pandemic, George Floyd, with the type of work I do, I just felt there's lots of us healthcare professionals that need to be a lot more visible out there, promoting information over the misinformation that was doing the rounds around social media. And I just felt it was really important to be more visible and also be around some of those tables that were setting some of the strategy and decision about how to coordinate the program. So hopefully bring some solutions and some of my lived experience, as well as experience practically as a GP, seeing patients and delivering the local vaccination program in my patch. So we, that's why I put myself forward, got the job, and it's been a whirlwind, you know, nine months or so. I started April 2021 on the vaccination program in London. And, that, and that's amazing. It's it's so nice to see, you know, our medical you know, personnel right at the front line, you know, being GPs actually involved at the decision-making table. It's something that I think that, you know, patients will find refreshing um, because you probably have more contact with um, the community um, than doctors, you know, working in hospitals and, you know, doctors working um, with a lot of agencies. So what would you say are the main challenges for London with regards to COVID with regards to vaccination you know it's a cosmopolitan city you know loads of people have connections around the world you know people from all over the world who may need to travel have traveled and the complexities that that brings to you know managing COVID in London. 
So what I'd say London is our capital city. It's a city of two hearts, which has been said lots. So you have your very extremely wealthy, but you have massive deprivation and probably more so than lots of other places. And I don't think that's acknowledged as much. We always hear about the South-North divide, but pockets of London are massively divided. We know COVID, what it's done, it's revealed a lot of the health inequalities that we've always known existed, but all COVID has done is put shone a big light on them. So that's been the same with London. So London is generally a younger population. It is really mobile. So people move in and out all the time. Um, it is more ethnically diverse than anywhere else in the country. And it's the main city, so it needed a lot more key workers to keep things moving. So public transport system, people to run, uh, you know, you know, the support systems, all of that, needed people out and about. They couldn't work from home effectively, so a large proportion were out and about doing their work, even during the lockdowns. So like any major capital city. So I'd say that those are some of the unique challenges with London, with um, delivering the vaccination program and also making sure we engage with all communities. So the term before was hard to reach groups, but actually it's groups not engaged with properly. And I think that's been one of the big lessons of this vaccination program, that if you really do the work and it is hard work and it takes time, um, but the hard yards really ground up work of engaging, you will get insights, you will get knowledge that will get you further. So I think the main reasons London is so unique are those main um, areas, you know, big, diverse population, younger population, very mobile population, people moving in and out all the time. The programme showed we vaccinated a lot of people that live out in Kent, Surrey and outer areas that go back as well. So and also the registered GP population in London we vaccinated more people than are actually registered with GPs to show that we do people move in and out all the time. So those are some of the unique challenges of our capital city. Yeah, it sounds like, you know, what the MBA program would describe as a wicked problem, <laughs> um, a very, mm. compl very complex one. So mm. what has been the strategy for London in terms of vaccination? And, and you know, how did London manage to get ahead of the, of the curve? you know, compared to, you know, probably somewhere different in terms of logistics and demographic and everything else. So, yeah, so I've been part of the vaccination program since April, but it had been going on for six months before that. So so much work, so much work in the background to plan, strategize. Um, there's the national vaccination team and then the regional teams, of which London's one of them. So there's lots of going back and forth. But the main thing with London, and I think London has always had a unique approach to things. It's known as different with its own set of unique challenges. Um, we are approaching the ICS era, the integrated um, care systems as such. So we're approaching that uh, era. So very much divided up into the five ICSs in London. So it was definitely done on that local, more local level. And even within the ICS, the, the big push was for hyper-local, really drill down into wards, specific communities. Um, there's been a brilliant program of community champions where you have that peer-to-peer -peer education and support. So investment's been put into like training them up in each area. There has been um, the collaboration between, for me, one of the great things has been the link between you have your NHS, you have public health or the National Security, UK Security Agency, as it's called now. You have local authority 
and councils and these champions and everyone really pulled together in a way that I've not seen yet in my career because there was this one target, this one goal. Obviously, it's a pandemic, the first time any of us has been in a pandemic, so all hands were on deck. But the collaboration, the shared knowledge, the push towards this, we need to get as many people protected as soon as possible and to tackle the three Cs, which is convenience, so proper access to the vaccine. It needs to be accessible to people. They shouldn't have to travel far. They shouldn't have to take loads of time off work. It should be accessible everywhere, and obviously free. Um, the confidence, so people weren't sure it's come too quickly. Why is it so fast? So increasing confidence that this vaccine is safe, is effective. So making sure we're having those conversations, providing the information in the way a wide range of people can understand. And the third C was complacency. So really dealing with the complacency of, oh, it's not a big deal, or oh, I'll just get it and it's a mild illness, I'll recover, really tackling the fact that this was a virus that caused major problems. It wouldn't have literally shut down the world if it didn't cause serious um, complications and morbidity in people. So really saying that we can't be complacent, also promoting the message that it, Protection against infectious disease is something we've done for a long time. So we have the science, we have the technology to facilitate really getting these vaccines, which was a brilliant thing. So just spreading the message of getting that out as far widespread as possible. But the infrastructure and the operational work behind the scenes to make sure that the GPs were set up, the pharmacists have been phenomenal. We've just seen so much more access to vaccines through pharmacists, which may be a direction that will be built on in the future because it's been such a success. Pharmacists have been involved in the flu campaign before, but it really exploded with this COVID vaccination. The big hubs, which were great for the big, you know, um, landscape, Twickenham and Chelsea or Arsenal football ground for the weekend. And it was a great event, those super Saturdays in the summer. But what really, really helped are those hyper-local, the pharmacists, your GP practice, you know, the small pop-ups that were done in buses that went around, you know, to the shopping centre, outside the hairdresser, outside the supermarket. So that hyper-local, the numbers may not be as big as the Twickenham day, but that really, and then those conversations that were had alongside with people that worked and lived in those areas, I think it's beyond the vaccine that will leave a legacy that will build trust and help address, I'm hoping, some of the other health inequalities and access issues we see across the health sector. Yeah, and I, I love how you beautifully illustrated, you know, that strategy. You know, again, having the business school hat on, you know, it sounds like really things are put in place in terms of organizational structure, mm. um, you know, a, a bottom up and a, and a top yeah. down. So there's free flow of information, you know, yeah. between the two. So you actually really have insights into the community. And also, you know, it sounds almost like a startup really in terms of, you know, using leveraging technology to your yeah. best advantage um, and really marketing yourself at the, ground level to the actual you know quote and unquote customers in this case in which case you know people who want to have the vaccination so it's really exciting to hear some of these principles applied you know in the healthcare environment yeah and successfully so if i'm if, if i may say so yeah because you know the bbc often shows the data on covid vaccinations and you know just gives us a covid 
data board. And you can see that London, you know, pretty much that I think the last time I looked had over 70, 80% of people who are vaccinated. And I think that's phenomenal success yeah. um, due to the hard work of centrally, I want to say GPs actually, because the delivery of this project really, you know, hermed at GPs facilitating that. So you mentioned um, ICSs. Just tell us what that stands for and how that's part of the London COVID uh, strategy or the London health strategy as a whole. So each area across the country has been divided into an integrated care system. So London has five. And the idea of that is to at last maybe blur some of the lines between primary, secondary care, also get community involved. And the idea is bringing care closer to patients and patients having journeys that make more sense to them. So that's the idea between integrated care systems. Lots and lots of work going on in the background to rearrange the current structures, which are CCGs, clinical um, commissioning group, into integrated care systems. So that's it in a nutshell. Yeah, so essentially we are amalgamating services and making it make sense for patients' care. That's the idea. So that is the concept, absolutely. Yeah, and I I agree with you. And I think, you know, when you concentrate services, you concentrate expertise, hopefully, and you concentrate resources and you concentrate the ability to do research and, you know, all those other capabilities that hopefully will deliver patient-centered care um, and value um, for patients out there. And also take away some of those barriers. So no, this is primary care, this is community health, this is secondary care. So that's the, I think the, the crux of it, which if it, when it, you know, as it emerges, um, will make more sense for the individual patients, hopefully. Yeah, we are looking forward to it in secondary care. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And that kind of brings me to, you know, the next question, which is, so as a GP, you know, still working, you know, pretty much full time on that aspect <laughs> and running, running the practice, what has been the impact of COVID on delivery of your services? Like, how have you managed to keep you and your teams up to date all the time as the rules rapidly changed and, you know, rapidly evolving guidelines and recommendations and laws around COVID? How have you managed to do all that governance work? Yeah. <laughs> and still maintain the delivery of normal, you know, what we call quote unquote, normal, regular, everyday GP services? No, it has been a massive, colossal challenge. I can't underestimate the impact. The last two years have had an impact on everyone, professionally and personally. I can talk from my perspective as a GP partner, um, managing partner of my practice, and the way, the speed at which information was being thrown at us on a day-by-day week by week basis in the, especially in the early phase of the pandemic. And not just that, so keep it on top of that. But the key thing was also in GP practices, you're a team, you get to know that team over time. It's one of my greatest honors in terms of building up a team, trying to support and encourage them. So you become a work family, you do. We spend a lot of time at work. You want to make sure you really are there for each other. So think about the fact that we were at the front line, people did have to come to work. Yes, we did a lot of things remotely quite quickly, but patients would still come. So there was a lot of anxiety within the team. So being really being there practically to support them, whilst we ourselves didn't know what was happening because everyone was learning on the hoof, as it were, at that time. So I think the key things were 
the communication aspect was so key. Even if you didn't know, being really open and honest about not sure about this, things are changing, but we'll figure it out together. We had one time where half the staff were off because query contact, query COVID, and then having to keep answering the phones and keep answering the queries and keep the balls ticking over. And that's where everyone just had to muck in, like nothing is too small or too big for anyone to do. So that true epitome of teamwork and people being there for each other, but acknowledging the pressure. And I think, especially two years on, that pressure has built up. People just keep going because the adrenaline is there and you have to keep going until you kind of stop for a bit and you realize that has actually been really tough. So I think we're really in a space of trying to cultivate the well-being world word has been used a lot, but really cultivate what do people need? And it's different for everyone. And really, make, you have to make the time as a team to support people in a way that's meaningful for them. And, and that's kind of what I want to do going into this year. But how one has kept up, all I can say by the grace, you know, literally that one has been able to keep up with it. But I think my motivation to support the staff and be there for patients as well, as much as we could be with everything that was happening, because patients of course were anxious and scared. And as doctors, you take on a lot of that sometimes. And it's how you make sure you keep yourself as balanced, as settled as possible, whilst you're feeling the same things, because there was so much uncertainty in that time. But the, the key thing for me was the communication. We have daily morning huddles, we have clinical huddles. So that check-in intentionally each day and then regular team meetings and meetings that meant that that had a specific purpose and intention and outcome, which you try to follow up with. Not always easy, but that's how we've tried in my little corner of the world. Yeah, I love that. As you said, it's so beautifully, you know, they're not just safety huddles, but they're well-being huddles as well. Mm. You know, and the fact that, you know, well-being means many things, many different people. You know, for some people, it's having the Headspace app, it's having a virtual reality app of some sort. Um, but for someone else, it's just having quality time with their family through it all. Yeah. Um, and I think that's been hard, like you said, you know, for everybody, basically. But there's, there's, there's one thing which, you know, has been in the media a lot, <laughs> which is, you know, GPs aren't seeing anyone face to face anymore. Yeah. And, you know, our, the new health secretary, you know, uh, proposed uh putting out their numbers and who which gps was you know were seeing who and things like that and i can only imagine what impact that had on the well-being of you know you know gp staff not not just you as a doctor it wasn't, wasn't a great moment especially because like you said gps have been at the forefront of delivering the most successful vaccination program in the history of the nhs we have been coming to work since the beginning of the pandemic we have been going into our care homes doing our palliative care visits in people's homes with inadequate PPE, let's just be clear. You know, so, and then remote consultations, which is the big thing, had been put into our contract before this pandemic started. So it was always gonna be the direction of travel to have more digital online consultations options for patients. It's actually part of our GP contract to make that option available. And the guidance that came out was to keep patients safe. Think about it. You have a waiting room with 30, 40 people covering and sputtering over each other. We know this pandemic is airborne. That would have been a disaster of the highest regard. If we continued as normal, 
Um, it wouldn't have been safe for staff and definitely not safe for patients. So we were actually instructed to consult things remotely unless you have to. And, it, and a lot of GP practices have been doing this for a long time, called like the doctor first model or triage first model, where you have a conversation, a clinician has a conversation with the patient, decides what can be dealt with on the phone, and then what can be brought in to the surgery, which needs an examination. In COVID times, especially in phase one, I would say, it meant that you took the history on the phone, you would bring that patient into maybe a hot room, some places had designated rooms with a separate exit and entrance, and you would do the focused exam, and then the patient would go home, so you'd limit the contact, and then you'd finish the consultation on the phone, and it actually improved efficiencies. If you look at the data, GPs saw more patients during the pandemic than ever before, if you add up all wow. the modalities. So the idea that we were closed <laughs> was, did not go down well, because people were working harder than ever. And we had the same issues with staff sickness, staff anxiety, staff being up. So it was less people doing more consultations than ever before. So yes, the modality is different because all of a sudden the technology all of a sudden came out of nowhere to support us. So the digital transformation that people had been crying out for um, happened. So we got, we're able to send text messages, emails, all of a sudden patients had more access to us via emails, the online consultations, video consultations. So you could visualize people. Patients wanted it because they didn't feel safe coming to the doctor. I still have to convince some people that it's okay to come in and get their blood test they've not done for a year and a half to monitor their condition because they're worried. So patients didn't want to come in and it's about each practice. And that's the nuance of that local effect. Every GP practice has to be given the space to do their due diligence with their unique patient population of what the needs of that population are. Some places want more remote consultations. Some want more face-to-face. -face. But it's, we have to also distinguish want versus clinical need as well and who's best place to make that decision. So I get patients see us as facilitates with their advocates, we build really strong relationships with our patients. And that's one of the reasons I love being a GP. You get to follow that journey over time. So I know that patients miss, like all of us, that personal contact with people you trust and enjoy being around. But with few of us around and a clinical job to be done, we have to think a little bit carefully about what a GP is here for and how we want to provide the right care for the right patients at the right time in the right way. And that is not always the standard face-to-face -face conversation. I just think we need to have a conversation about what access looks like. And if you actually look at the facts, patients have more access to us in different ways, but it wasn't, they, maybe the conversation wasn't had with patients about different ways you can access your GP. And also the best use of a shrinking population because there are less GPs around than they were two years ago, unfortunately, and more set to leave. So. Um, we want to maintain a good level of service, but we have to find um, better ways to do that. Yeah, and I, I couldn't agree with you more. I think, you know, the digital first strategy of, you know, our primary care of GP services at the moment has caused so much controversy. And, you know, I wonder, you know, what is the way forward? Do we just need a culture shift or, you know, uh, as you say, our patients, are they missing out on the human touch? And the expertise of their GPs that know them so well, or what is what is it that needs to happen for the digital first strategy to be acceptable to the majority of people? 
um, or for the service to find another way that you know is a hybrid system as you're doing at the moment mm -hmm. that is acceptable to patients it's a tough one because I don't think one size fits all and like I said you need to really do the work in your own and that's why that hyper-local approach is so important do the research in your own patient population engage with your patient groups to find out what works you're never going to be able to please everyone but what what works for the majority um, but we have to find ways to improve efficiencies the technology can facilitate a lot of this we know continuity of care and we all crave human personal touch so that will never be replaced by a video or by telephone or other means but we do know it can facilitate more access and ultimately people, that's what people want. So I do think an honest conversation had to, has to be had with the general population about the best ways to access healthcare. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you on that because I, you know, even in hospital and secondary care, you know, a lot of things that can move to a digital, you know, first strategy has done so. So, yeah. you know, you touched on uh, sort of staff retention and attrition there for a second, and the fact that we've lost a lot of GPs, some some true death from COVID in itself, actually, yeah. and yeah. some from just, you know, this is not working for me anymore as a person from a well-being perspective. Yeah. Now, on top of all of that, um, last year, the government introduced the, the law with regards to vaccination in the community. Mm -hmm. um, what do you think has been the impact of the compulsory vaccination for healthcare workers in the community in terms of London? Um, you know, you don't have to have the numbers, just a rough idea of what you think possibly has happened since that law came into being, which obviously has suddenly this week <laughs> um, become on, come under review again for you know, changing, yes. the, changing the way we're going. I mean, I think there are lots of different reasons for it. Remember, it started with our care home staff. That's correct. And I feel like the government, because our care homes were so affected by the pandemic in the early year, in the early months, it was really, really hard to see what happened in a lot of our care homes. The government, I feel, had to be seen to do something when something came along to offer maximum protection. So we know vaccine is one powerful tool in our toolkit of lots of other protection, adequate BBE, ventilation, spacing, regular testing. So it came through with the care homes and it was a very difficult time. So I was involved in a lot of conversations one-on-one -on -one with care home staff, group consultations about education, about addressing those three Cs, because a lot of them were on zero hour contracts or night shifts. So they needed proper access to the vaccine. So it was about taking it to them, vaccinating them at the same time as the residents. So lots and lots of schemes to try to promote. But um, people were did feel coerced, even though ultimately it's a choice. No one's going to pin anyone down and force a vaccine on them. But people did feel coerced and forced to make a decision between their job and getting vaccinated. In the care home example, most staff did get their vaccine. So the data went up to late 90s of care home staff were vaccinated by the time that came through, I believe it was in November. So there was a consultation for healthcare and other social care staff, so domiciliary care workers and hospital and primary care and any CQC regulated activity. So that was passed through. And um, the idea was by the 1st of April, anyone working in a healthcare or social care setting needed to be vaccinated. So that has just been paused 
for now because ultimately we had till was it tomorrow thursday yes that's correct for yeah. anyone not vaccinated <laughs> be- with their first dose to get their first dose yeah. and we, we have seen the numbers go up in the last two three weeks as we approach this vaccination as a condition of deployment deadline i think the reason for the pause is there's a lot of politics involved in the pandemic so there are decisions made on a political level and a government level that isn't just about the health side, if you like. So we're clinicians, we deal with the health side, but we go by some of the decisions made by our politicians and we have had to do throughout this whole pandemic. So the two have been mixed and and definitely um, overlapped throughout the last two years of this pandemic. So right now we have seen numbers go up in the last few weeks of healthcare staff getting their vaccines. I think the conversation continues. So we still are seeing people come forward every week getting their first vaccine. So there's the evergreen offer to say, and that's the general population as well as the healthcare staff. And you don't, what is it that makes someone click to say, actually, I'm ready now? And people just sometimes need more time. Sometimes they need that one-to-one clinical conversation. Sometimes they just need the space for their mind to be right, that this is right for them. So you provide all the information and you want people to make an informed choice. And I think for me, it's about providing the correct information to debunk some of the worrying stuff that has been circulating, some of it frankly untrue and quite dangerous. But there's been a lot of it, and a lot of it is incredibly convincing. So I'm not surprised people have been so scared. Also, we've been in a pandemic. So that anxiety, the other stresses have all added to make it a bit of a pressure cooking point. And then when your livelihood is threatened, it just added another kind of nail in the coffin of this kinder pot that of feelings and emotions. So it's been a very tough few weeks with employers and managers and staff working really hard to try to work through the process, as it were. I think the decision to pause things has caused relief in some camps and frustration in other camps. And there's a lot of things that we'll need to unpick in terms of risk assessments will still need to go ahead for people who remain choose to remain unvaccinated um, because fundamentally we know the vaccines are safe and effective. We believe they do reduce risk overall. It doesn't eliminate risk, but it reduces risk. If you have a group of vaccinated people, they're more protective than a group of unvaccinated people. So we still need to promote those public health messages for the general population and for healthcare staff. But I think that's what we want to continue doing, having the conversations, providing the access, um, providing information that will improve confidence in the vaccine. And that work is still ongoing. Yeah, and I think it will probably forever be ongoing, if we're going to be honest, really. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, again, just hanging on to the topic of vaccine hesitancy, how do we address this amongst healthcare workers, you know, and to avoid, you know, the high attrition rates that possibly could happen, you know, with or without the law being enforced? Mm. And I think morale is low for lots of different reasons we've already talked about it the stress of the last two years the workload pressures um, staff leaving for different reasons we want to retain staff and um, we want to give staff opportunities to feel they can grow and develop um, with the vaccine issue people were ready to leave i believe you know i mean ultimately the data shows that most people may have waited till very much the last minute then got it 
last last minute. The care home data showed us that. But in this case, people did become quite entrenched in their views for lots of different reasons. And I think all we need to do, and I think for me, always approaching it with compassion, with curiosity and with kindness has always been my approach to really try to find out where people are and where they're at, because it's always more than one thing, isn't it? Yes, this is the one polarizing thing, the vaccine. But if you extrapolate it, it will be about their general terms and conditions at work or their opportunity to progress or, you know, stuff going on at home or the general pressures of life and all the all the stress we've all had. So it's always beyond that. And I think being, and as a GP, I'm interested in people and their stories. I'm curious and I want to approach people with empathy and with kindness and really meeting people where they're at and then providing information if they want that information is where we still want to continue going. So I feel those risk assessment, COVID assessment, risk assessment questionnaires need to be well-being questionnaires as well. How are, like, really, how are you? Not just the tick box, I've asked how they are. Really exploring where people are at, because that's the only way. If people feel that you do care and you do value them, because they haven't felt cared for and valued, we all clap for the carers, and then we were like, you're about to lose your job. That's how people feel. And that's the conversations I've been having. So I think now we need to kind of stop, pause, take stock, and really drill down What's it really about beyond the vaccine? And that's for healthcare professionals and for the wider population. And, uh, you know, you you put that so beautifully. I, I want to say, can you please be my GP? <laughs> um, because, you know, some of the data coming through shows that maternity services would have been hit quite hard yeah. because there were a lot of mid- a lot of midwives who remain unvaccinated. And, you know, I must say, just from someone observing that, kind of data it almost seems like it translates true to the fact that a lot of pregnant women remain unvaccinated um and you know i would say this is probably a little bit of a concern um because through both the second and the third wave of the pandemic a lot of pregnant women have ended up in intensive care um you know with complications of of their pregnancy and especially unvaccinated women Um, So what advice would you have for any staff who is currently reconsidering their choice, you know, regardless of whatever the law or whatever we're going to decide with the pause and everything else, what advice would you have for them um, about how to approach their own decision? Yeah. And I'd say keep open. It's been a really tough time. And I think really being open about um, everyone will have their own individual reasons why they're unsure about the vaccine. So I'd say to keep as open as possible, keep doing, looking for information, but look for information that counters the view that may be your first standing point. So myself, I always look for information that has the opposite view. So you can then weigh up and then make a critical thoughts decision going forward and really make an informed decision. Because if everything on your feed or everything you're looking at is research, just back it up what you already think, you need to really seek out the counter view. I'd say really seek out those conversations with any trusted healthcare professional or any trusted person around you that may have a different viewpoint. So you can just really tease out some of the key issues of any concerns or worries. Some people just literally need more time. And a common theme was I just not settled in my mind about it. So instead of just saying, this is not for me, really keep doing the information and and letting the facts speak for themselves about who's at risk 
and who they're seeing in hospital and, and, and letting that help frame their decision making rather than staying entrenched in one viewpoint and thinking that is the only way. There's a reason why a diagnosis of COVID-19 in 2022, January 2022, is not what it is in January 2021. And I know people feel Omicron is milder. People with Omicron in ITU right now that were unvaccinated. So it's not about it being milder necessarily. It's about the fact that we've had exposure. Our immune systems has had exposure to this virus via vaccination or previous infection now. So we obviously have work to do on that natural immunity versus vaccine-mediated immunity, but we have vaccinated against infectious disease for generations upon generations. You know, we cannot be complacent about the damage this virus does. And it's so unpredictable. I can't tell you that well person, they're not going to end up not just, and it's not just the death rates. We're just measuring the death rates. Just being, even if people with mild infection, long COVID or post COVID-19 syndrome is a real thing. I have several patients on my books, can't work a year later after their initial mild infection. So we can't, I can't tell you who will be affected, who will get complications, who will not. But we know COVID-19 caused a major problem and until we get to the point where it's not causing the major problem that it has done no one's safe until everyone's safe as it was and our best protection is vaccination so i would say people should stay open to that and really analyze the information that they're getting and make sure they're getting information from a different source from maybe where they have been getting information initially and i i love that you know stay open stay stay inquisitive about the knowledge yeah. and the information as it comes true. And I think, you know, it's so important, you know, we, we read about smallpox um, and most of us in our lifetime would never have seen anyone with smallpox before. Yeah. And that is, you know, due to a vaccination program that started many years ago. And we almost eradicated uh, smallpox until a small outbreak um, in, some, in some parts of the world. So we have a real opportunity here, you know, with the vaccination that yeah. potentially, you know, we, we can truly make COVID something that is not something that interrupts all our lives. Yeah. And, as you, and as you said, no one's safe until everyone's safe, essentially, yeah. um, uh, from COVID. And I'll just add quickly, just in terms of the complacency I feel we have in the West across other infectious diseases. So childhood immunizations are MMR. You know, do measles, mumps, rubella. I mean, rates have gone up because people haven't been vaccinated as much. But we are a little bit complacent because we don't see it generally in the West. You know, we whereas you only have to go to certain parts of the world. You know, polio, you know, emerged in northern Nigeria because people were suspicious of the vaccine. We don't see polio here. Whereas if you go back 60 years, it was a thing that was seen, you know, and people were worried about it. Then vaccinations came along. And it's not something we've come across in our day-to-day -day practice. So we're complacent about the fact polio is not a problem. But why is it not a problem? Because we've been vaccinating children against polio for a generation. So I do think there's something in the West about the fact that COVID came along. And people, this is the other question that I'm still exploring about why COVID hasn't been the problem in Africa, for instance, as it has been in the West. And I just think Africa has a lot of issues. Is it typhoid? Is it meningitis? Is it maternal mortality? You know, in terms of pecking order, they see a lot of morbidity and problems. And whereas here, COVID came and took over everything, but we have infrastructure, we have the technology, we have the vaccinations to protect. 
So we're in an inenviable position to protect ourselves against this new, well, newish infectious disease now. So I just think we do need to realize and put it in context with normalizing vaccination against all infectious diseases. And just to go back to pregnant women, statistically, you know, we, we offer influenza vaccine, we offer the whooping cough vaccine, that's more to protect the newborn baby from pertussis. So we have vaccinated pregnant women, but we've never analyzed the data with as much scrutiny as we had in COVID because we're in a pandemic. So I do think there's something about the reluctance to vaccinate in pregnancy. Pregnant women are reluctant to take anything that they don't have to take um, unless um, they absolutely have to. So, and I think midwives as well in that want to advocate for the women. So it's a difficult, complex area. And it's something that I think the emerging information from this vaccination program will help work on those strategies going forward. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I guess we will probably end on that note. There's so many more things I would love to ask you. Um, you know, all the stuff about, you know, the safety of enforcing the law of vaccination versus leaving this, you know, NHS unsafe with even less staff and all the rest of it. And there's so much around this area that, you know, I think like you had said, no one's safe until we're all safe. And I think we'll end on the note that I think everybody has a responsibility to weigh up the evidence for themselves um, and do what they think is not just right for them as a person, but also right for, you know, the people around them and society at large. You know, not just your children today will thank you, but grandchildren, you know, and generations after you will thank you for the decisions you make today. Um, so thank you very much, um, Dr. Lozray, for joining us today. Um, it's been a great pleasure. We learned so much from you. And we thank the London COVID team as well for all the hard work that yeah. you guys have been doing. Um, a phenomenal <laughs> amount of work, honestly. They've really yeah. been amazing. We amazing do, team. We won't do the Thursday clap, but we will truly, uh, we're truly <laughs> honoured um, by all the hard work um, by, by, you know, the teams behind the scenes. So thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Thank you.